Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 43, Sonics in the UK. The UK and Europe are home to approximately 100 Sonics aircraft, about half of which are flying. Home building is indeed alive and well, and our guest is going to tell us all about Sonics activities across the pond. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374, and joining me as usual are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John is having a schedule conflict and will attempt to join us as we uh, get underway. And Gary Motley is here to kick things off with us. Gary, how's it going? Doing well, bud. Doing well. It's drizzling a little bit here in Colorado at the moment, but we could use a little bit of rain to put out some of these western forest fires we've been having. Yeah, you guys need the rain for the fires. Uh, We've had a little bit of rain coming through here in Kansas City. And then as we speak, there is a hurricane bearing down in the Gulf Coast, and those guys are going to get more rain than they know what to do with. I saw that. I was, I was thinking to myself, I bet you're glad you missed you left uh, Vicksburg about this time. I would be canceling my weekend plans right about now because we're going to, we would undoubtedly have activated our emergency operations center and gone into full on hurricane mode. So they're going to be sure. busy. Instead, uh, I'm going to check the weather to see if I can go fly, you know, maybe twice over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest tonight is Steve Moody. Steve is from Lemington Spa, England, and uh, according to Google, that is uh, in the central part of the country. And Steve, you'll have to tell us a little bit about uh, your home area and what it's like to fly uh, in England. Steve is building Sonics 1383, and among other activities, such as restoring a classic uh, Whitman tailwind, flying around all over Europe, and month-long sailing holidays, and basically traveling to faraway places and exotic locations like Florida and Wisconsin. Uh, Steve uh, also is very active in the Light Aircraft Association in the UK, so he'll tell us all about the LAA and his activities there. So Steve, thanks for talking with us, and for those people that haven't quite put this together, we normally record in the evening in the States, which makes it very late for you in, in England. So again, it's about midnight your time, isn't it? Just after midnight, yes. And uh, I appreciate that. Uh, you're a champ for being for staying up late and, uh, and hanging with us. My pleasure. Well, Steve must be a young man because that's well after my bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> I've just retired, so I'm young in some eyes, perhaps, yes. <laughs> young at heart, right? Indeed, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, before we uh, get into hearing about Sonic's activities in the UK, uh, I would like to go over one news item. So recently on the Sonic's Builder list, there has been a report of a machined tailwheel that Sonic sells as an aftermarket upgrade accessory that failed in service. And you can go to Sonic's Builder, you can read the description and see the photos. But to summarize the incident... Uh, aircraft was landing, and on rollout, the steering arm that connects the, the push rod, the steering push rod, to the actual tailwheel mechanism, the caster part of it, 
there are a couple of threaded 8.32nd screws that hold that steering arm to the body of the caster. Well, those screws apparently failed, and it caused that steering arm to become disconnected. And so the person who posted this had some photos and a warning for people to take a look at those and maybe uh, inspect them. Now, having looked at this, um, I, I wanted to get a, a better sense of the screws and the suitability of those screws. So I just pulled out a piece of scratch paper and was looking at the, the strength of those 832nd screws. And maybe to back up just a little bit, normal, normal business practice in airplane, airplane use would be to have an AN style hardware where you have a smooth shank bolt that has that unthreaded grip portion that's in the joint that's being bolted up. Um, that is not always done. Uh, arguably, that is a, a desirable practice, but not every joint is like that. In the Sonic's tailwheel, they use a standard, I'm not sure what grade of, of screw, but it's a standard fully threaded 832nd screw. And there has been some discussion about whether that contributed to the steering arm breaking off. So looking at the numbers, I'm just going to throw a couple of, couple of numbers out. Uh, for an 832nd screw, it's not just 832nds in diameter. You, you lose a little bit of material because the threads are cut into that shank. If you compare the, the area of that screw, the cross-sectional area of the screw, compared to the cross-sectional area of the smooth shank, they're quite a bit different. And if you actually run the numbers, you find that the smooth shank is about 40% greater area. So automatically, a smooth shank is going to give you more resistance to shearing off that screw. So if you if you assume it's a low uh, low strength steel screw, 60,000 psi shear load, or a stainless at about 75,000, or a high strength at 120,000, you can calculate how much load this screw should be able to resist. So when I do that, I, I assume a low strength steel screw, and I run all the numbers, and based on the geometry of the tailwheel, I get a, a calculated moment back there on the tail that would have to be applied to break those screws off. And I get something like 70 foot-pounds. And that's the worst case scenario. If you start plugging in higher strength steel and things like that, you can get things that are two or three times higher. So the question becomes, is a threaded screw appropriate in that tailwheel? And, and here's where I'm just going to kind of stop the discussion right there. Sonics has done this design. They have run these calculations in detail, much more than my, my napkin math here. And, um, and they have a design that has been in service for years and has a, a track record of pretty good performance. So I'll, I'll simply just sort of end my, my discussion of the analysis by saying this. There is no doubt you can demonstrate that a smooth shank and style bolt in your tailwheel will give you a stronger joint. And if a builder chose to replace the screws... They, they would certainly expect the, the tailwheel, the steering arm, to be stronger as a result. But that's not really the question here. I don't think we have a, an established pattern that says this is an across-the-board, have-to-make-a-change situation. The real question is, is the existing design strong enough? Well, that's something that I think Sonics uh, has a lot of confidence in, and they could probably provide some comment on that. And if you were to make this change without doing any analysis or, or without doing any sort of testing, might you introduce a, an unintended consequence? Maybe you beef up this particular joint, 
but now the loads are transferred to some other thing, which is not well suited to resist those loads. Anyway, um, maybe a long-winded way of saying that Sonics has a, a good, well-thought-out design, and if a customer has a concern about it, probably the safest thing to do is to recommend that they call the factory, have a conversation with them, run through the very particulars of that of that situation, and, uh, and try to identify if there's something larger at work here. And if you don't do that, if you don't engage Sonics, it's hard for them to come back right away and give an informed opinion. So if anybody has, has followed this discussion and are concerned about the quality of their tailwheel, uh, I would caution them to maybe just slow things down and um, and give Sonics a chance to take a look at everything and um, go over their database and rerun the numbers and then provide some, some thoughtful analysis back to us. Steve, uh, Gary, any, any comments on that? No, I think it's a, that's a reasonable thing. I mean, almost anything we produce is going to have a certain amount of, of, of failure rate. I think it's just inherent in the mechanical issues for a lot of various reasons. Doesn't necessarily mean the design itself was originally faulty, but until there's enough significant database uh, to prove a consistent result, you just kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and kind of make up your own mind if you want to be proactive or not. Uh, I can only echo both of what you said. What, what, what you said, both of you. It's uh, uh, too early days to jump to conclusions, perhaps. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, Steve, um, let's uh, let's start off this discussion with uh, give us a little bit of background about about your flying career, your early uh, days coming up in aviation, and then maybe kind of transition into how you got interested in Asonics and take us to the point where you started building your own project. Gosh, that covers an awful lot of ground. Well, you should be able to do that in two or three minutes, right? <laughs> Uh, here comes the potted version. Um, as a five-year-old, I was taken on a beautiful locking constellation out in the uh, um, antipodes between New Zealand, Australia, and Singapore, and something called the aviation bug bit me on the way there, and um, I've been sort of uh, unable to break away from an addiction to aviation ever since. Um, my parents lived abroad, um for many years, when I was a teenager, I was flying backwards and forwards from where they were to the UK to go to school, uh, which reinforced the, um, the bug in those days. Of course, there was no locks on cockpit doors. As kids, we could just wander in and out and say, what does this do and what does that do? Naturally, I wanted to be a pilot. I was given some very poor advice uh, by a careers-type person when I was uh, a late teenager, which basically said, You'll never be a commercial pilot or any form of military pilot because you wear glasses. So I looked around for alternative uh, aviation-orientated fun things to do and ended up becoming an air traffic controller, which I did for 13 years or so in the end from age 17. During that process, I discovered that the medical that I had to pass to be an air traffic controller was identical to the medical for the commercial pilot's license. I had a PPL. I worked through um, uh, getting a commercial license. The routes are somewhat different this side of the pond than they are with yourselves. But uh, essentially, with a private pilot's license, I could instruct. So I got sufficient experience to become uh, 
an instructor and then use that instructing time uh, to get myself a commercial license of instrument rating. I uh, was very lucky to have my wife uh, to agree to me leaving a good, well-paid, long-term pension job and jump out into the world of trying to get a job flying for a living. Uh, that worked. Um, early 30s, I started uh, flying night freight in King Airs and Bandurantes and uh, all sorts of interesting little turboprops. Very, very good basic fundamental experience. Then eventually moved on to flying. Uh, well, the first jets were Learjets and HS125s, which um, you're probably more familiar with as the Hawker 800. Um, MD83s, uh, back to turboprops for a while. Then uh, back 111, Mr. Boeing 737, which I loved. And then for the last 10 years or so of my career until I retired recently, I was flying Mr. Airbus's 320s, which are a very, very good airplane. I love them. Um, so I'm not sure on the two minutes, but a little bit more through all that, carried on instructing from 1980 until the present day. Um, got into home building, helped restore a couple of aircraft. Uh, about 10 years or so ago, financially, beginning to look like I could afford to buy the kit that I'd always wanted to buy. Did some fairly detailed investigation into um, the options, what could be bought reasonably this side of the Atlantic. Um, I was flying a Whitman Tailwind at the time. The Sonics is very much the grandchild of the Whitman Tailwind in terms of design concepts and so on. Um, settled on the Sonics. Uh, been building it ever since. It's not finished, but it's it's not too far off. And just having fun with airplanes. Great. Um, so I know you probably get this just like every other builder, but when do you think your your Sonics project is going to mature to the point that you're going to be ready to uh, do the first flight? Yeah, um, I always assumed when I retired that I would have a lot more time to work on the aircraft in my garage, which you know it's at home; it's not any distance away. Um, but I've been just incredibly busy doing all sorts of things, mostly volunteering uh, and instructing and so on since I retired. That I last year or so, I haven't actually put much time in on the aircraft. Um, next month, I'm away for four or five months uh, from home, so I won't be able to work on it over our winter. Um, but next year, um, starting in the spring, I have every intention of getting stuck into it. And I think I've probably got 18 months' work uh, to complete. It is structurally complete. I'm just installing systems now. I put the uh, the hydraulic brakes in a couple of weeks ago. So uh, it's the old familiar, you know, 90% done and 90% to go, I guess, really. Yeah, well, that, that's good. Um, I think 18 months is probably a, a good target timeline to get the rest of that work completed up if the basic structure is finished. And we've heard this many times before. After you retire, you get far busier than you ever were when you were working. So my advice is if you want to finish your airplane, you need to quit retirement and go back to work. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, um, I, I've had offers, <laughs> but I'm, just, I'm resisting strongly because I'm just having too much fun being retired. <laughs> I, did, I did retire early, I hasten to add, before I had to. 
Well, great. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Sonic's activities in the UK and uh, just help us get a, a feel for the, the quantities and where they're distributed and the flavor of Sonic's um, in England? Yeah, okay. Well, the flavor, I, it's not as popular a kit as I would have expected and hoped, but um, we've got about eight or nine flying aircraft. Uh, both, mostly jab powered 3300 uh, aircraft with a mix of nose and tail wheel. The local LAA regulations prohibit the use of the um, 80 horsepower 2200 jab, so it's either the Aero V or the 3300 for us. Um, there's only now currently one Aero V powered tail wheel Sonics, which is still under flight test out on the east coast. Uh, there was one up in Scotland, but that's been now sold to France. Uh, on top of that, we've got um, two more Jab 3300s about to fly, or certainly flying in the next few months, and about six or seven, I think, more under construction. Um, you touched earlier on the LAA rally. Um, a number of people I spoke to over the weekend are potential builders, so uh, we may well get some more in the future. Well, Steve, you had mentioned something about the 2200 not being, if I understood that correctly, an authorized choice. I know I don't think it's ever really been all that popular here in the U.S., but it wasn't prohibited. Can you expand on why that might have been there in the U.K. with the L.A.? Yeah, we have a um, control of build and operation regime, which is uh, much tighter, I suppose, is one way of putting it than uh, you guys enjoy with the EAA methodology and experimental. Um, there's a set of uh, aircraft design criteria called CSVLA, which determine all sorts of very stringent detail on aircraft um, design characteristics, etc. The 2200-powered Sonics was found to be deficient in longitudinal stability uh, due to the lightweight of the engine. Uh, hence, to satisfy the rules that we are required to comply with, uh, to satisfy longitudinal stability requirements, not only oh, do we have to use the heavier Aero-V or the Jabiru 3300, there's also about five airframe modifications that have to be made all designed to produce an aircraft which is uh, in compliance with these longitudinal stability requirements. Alrighty. So it looks like John has joined us. Uh, John, are you on? Yes, I am. I just oh. got in late. Sorry. Okay, great. Yep. Steve, I guess I'll just comment. Just um, for people that are not familiar with the required modifications uh, that the LAA has for the Sonics. Uh, I'm simply going to offer two things. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Light Aircraft Association where you can go to the technical files and, and find uh, a more complete description of the modifications. But without getting into the, the particulars of it, uh, I think it's important to understand what they're trying to accomplish with these mandatory modifications. They are looking at producing uh, a very safe, controllable, easily flown, uh, conventional handling aircraft. 
And um, they have a particular set of characteristics that they're trying to achieve, and they require modifications that move the design in those directions. And without getting into whether we think that these are good or bad modifications, it simply is the 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 law of the land and something that is part of flying a Sonics in the UK. And I'll just leave it at that. Indeed. Very, very appropriate summary. Okay, well, uh, Steve, then let's um, let's talk a little bit more about the LAA. And uh, it, it, to my understanding, it is the not just the the regulatory body for light aircraft and um, experimental home built aircraft. It is also uh, an industry representative and a and a, a body that promotes light aircraft and and serves a lot of the same functions that the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft association does in the states is that a fair way to summarize yes i think it is um there's uh we, we have engineering department uh supervision of build and maintenance once flying uh, which is probably the main area of operation and that is the um, civil aviation authority the equivalent of the faa's uh, done on their delegation uh, to um, control and produce safe flying as a result. There are various other uh, sections of the LAA around. The one that I'm most heavily involved in is called the uh, the coaching scheme, um, which is, I think, uh, equivalent to your flight counsellors, where experienced uh, instructors provide instructional services to LAA members, um, particularly in terms of type conversions, grass strip flying, um, more complex uh, systems that other pilots may not have come across before, like variable um, pitch propellers and uh, retractable undercarriages and so on. Some expansion of that coming up now in that we've now got approval for um, hire and reward in aircraft supervised by the LAA, we operate on a flight approval called a permit to fly as opposed to a full certificate of airworthiness. And recently, after long negotiation, we within the LAA have got um, permission to use permit to fly aircraft for hire and reward within the sort of flying club type environment. That's very recent, so we don't know how that's going to pan out. And we're fairly hopeful that in the future we may even get um, approval to do ab initio training on permit aircraft as well. It's just a rather more complex regulatory environment, shall we say. So this is a um, a government delegated task to basically a, a private corporation, is that right? That's Pretty accurate, yes. It's an association, I would say, rather than a corporation, um, run by members, elected members on the board, very much as per the EAA. Um, there's no specific drive towards a profit at the end of it, but we are very correctly required to uh, at least break even and produce a return if possible. But everything is done under a, a very carefully designed and applied derogation of um, responsibility from the Civil Aviation Authority. 
And Steve, um, it, am I am I correct in that you also serve as a test pilot for the LAA? Uh, I, I do test flying of permit aircraft on behalf of uh, the owner. The LAA doesn't have a specific test pilot scheme as such, um, though uh, a few years ago um, they ran a series of uh, training events for people like myself, experienced instructors and so on, to uh, be taught test flying techniques uh, by a couple of uh, very experienced professional test pilots. Um, um, and it, probably the most interesting week of flying I've ever done in my life. And uh, that then put in place a cadre of um, trained and experienced LAA members who could do test flying of new aircraft and modified aircraft uh, to a hopefully uh, consistent standard uh, without having to call on professional expensive services. It is possible for a builder to do his or her own test flying, subject to them applying to uh, to do so, but there would be a fairly close scrutiny of their experience and so on to determine whether it was appropriate for them, in the view of uh, engineering department, uh, whether it would be appropriate for them to do that test flying. In most cases, um, the builders don't feel confident or don't have that experience, so... Uh, there's about a dozen of us, I suppose, around the country who um, step in and do that for them. Good fun. I love it. And that's interesting because uh, to contrast that with the way it works in the U.S., there is almost a, an assumption that the builder of an experimental aircraft uh, will very likely be the person who does the first flight. And for a long time, you were prohibited from having a second person in the airplane during the entire test period. So as the as the owner of that brand new experimental you were faced with a choice. Do your own first flight and, and phase one test phase uh, or try to talk a friend into doing it or hire a professional to do it. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different mindset from what you have in the LAA. Yeah, I gather from reading posts that there's quite often difficulties getting insurance for the uh, aircraft and the pilot for doing test flying under those circumstances. Uh, the great advantage we have, or one of the main advantages we have here with the uh, the loosely organized uh, group of LAA test pilots is that there is insurance in place already uh, through the LAA so that we can just step in and do that. The right. aircraft has to have us insurance as well, of course. The other big advantage we have is um, your phase one is 40 hours normally, as I understand it. Ours is nearly five hours. We prove the aircraft. If it's safe after five hours, we do a data gathering exercise in about a 45, 50 minute flight test. If that's all satisfactory, they get their permit and they go off and fly. Mm -hmm. And it would normally be the test pilot who then does the check out of the um, the owner on the aircraft. That's quite a common thing as well. Yeah. Assuming he's got two seats, of course. Right. And, and again, another difference... Um, for U.S. pilots, you get a an insurance policy that is written to a specific pilot for a specific airplane. Um, it, it is that pilot's policy. And the underwriters are most concerned about the pilot's experience. So if you have time in a similar type of airplane, 
they will likely insure you right from the start or something that's comparable. Uh, uh-huh. there's, there's no requirement for the insurance company that the plane have already proven itself by completing a phase one or even a five-hour sort of initial test flight. It's all about the pilot's qualifications. Sure. And that's where the training courses that uh, the LAA organized a few years ago for this group of uh, people like myself is very advantageous because we can show uh, training and experience in doing test flying. Well, the closest thing we have is um, our buddy, Mike Singleton. He is in Texas, and he has done something like 15 Sonics first flights. And he does it because he's passionate about Sonics airplanes and helping builders, and uh, he's good at it. But he is not formally delegated that responsibility. He has no formal training to do that. Um, he is just highly experienced and, and very uniquely qualified at it. That's about the closest we have to that. I, I, I've, I've done but three, and I have two more on the horizon. So I've got a little bit to do to catch up with him. What about the build process in, in England for a Sonics? How would that go about? Um, there is uh, some... I'm, I'm not entirely familiar with the, the EAA methodology, but there's a broad equivalent to your tech counselors, uh, who's just called an inspector. Uh, you would be required before you started any construction on a kit to find an inspector who was prepared to um, come and ins- do the necessary checks on you and on your work. Then uh, you get a, a build book, which is just a, a series of uh, various stages through the construction of the aircraft. Essentially, you can't close up any item, like you can't rivet the final skin on a wing until it has been looked at by your inspector uh, given the okay and the necessary signature appeared in the build book. So it's possibly a little bit more closely controlled, but it's quite relaxed and certainly friendly way of doing things. All right. Well, Steve, let's talk about the uh, the rally that you guys just had. From what I understand, this is the LAA National Rally. It's a once a year type thing. And this is a fairly big deal. Uh, for us, it's a big deal. Um if you, uh, well, my most recent experience in uh, equivalent things in the States was Sun and Fun last April, and it's much smaller than Sun and Fun, but in terms of the uh, the numbers of aircraft available uh, to attend and so on, uh, we do pretty well. I think on Saturday afternoon for this rally, uh, we were pretty busy. I think we had upwards of a thousand aircraft on the airfield, um, which is a big gathering for Europe. Um, it has been bigger in the past. The best we ever did was just under 2,000 airplanes. That was about 15 years ago. But um, that was under a different organizational method, which allowed for larger numbers. It was good. Where was the rally weekend. held? I beg your pardon? Where was the rally held at? Uh, this rally was held at an airfield called Cywell, which is just outside Northampton, about uh, an hour and a half's drive north of London. Very nice airfield with a long, long history. And I did see some posts on Facebook of various aircraft that were there, and I saw at least one Sonics 1X that was in attendance. Uh, that was Dirk Verdonk's uh, 1X, which he flew over from Belgium. Uh, which was a very welcome thing to see. Um, he completed his test regime not very long ago, 
and was able to bring it to the rally and blew it across the channel and then up through Kent and east of London. And uh, it was very, very nice to see a 1X. It's the first flying 1X that we've seen in the UK. There is another one under construction further north up in Yorkshire, but um, it's not flown yet. An interesting little aside there on Dirk's 1X. Uh, he's Belgian, the aeroplane lives in Belgium, but the registration on the side of the aircraft is Dutch uh, from the Netherlands uh, because uh, the home-built um, regime, for want of a better word, in Belgium apparently is even more strict than it is here in the UK. So most Belgians either build their home-builts under Dutch rules or under French rules because it makes things much easier. So, Steve, um, I'm sure that um, a, a gathering like this is a good opportunity to get the local Sonics builders together, the pilots, to have at least an impromptu gathering. Uh, what did you guys do along those lines? Well, uh, I always promote a gathering of Sonics builders, pilots, and wannabes, um, usually on the Saturday afternoon. Uh, and we had a very good turnout this year. Uh, I think we had certainly 15 or possibly more like 20 uh, builders, partners, interested people, uh, people flying already. We had um, the One X and two Sonics uh, all parked close to each other. Uh, we all met up uh, in the exhibition area, then walked out to the flight line and uh, spent a couple of hours chatting, looking at aircraft, looking at Sonics, uh, bits and pieces, saying, how did you do that or why didn't you do this? And um, it, it was a very, very good discussion exercise uh, between all these people in sunshine around some And we've seen this uh, time and time again. Uh, builders and, and pilots, uh, they're the best spokesperson for Sonics. A lot of times oh, the builder is just incredibly enthusiastic and very willing to talk about the project and, and really promote it to, to new people. And that's how we really kind of grow the Sonics ranks. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Up until fairly recently, we had a uh, a Sonics-appointed distributor or dealer, if you prefer, for their uh, aircraft and so on here in the UK. That um, arrangement is now no longer functioning. But um, the rally is the big shop window for home-built aircraft. Uh, there are other smaller events for microlights and so on, but uh, the LAA rally is where uh, kit-built aircraft are brought to the fore. And um, there must have been, I would guess, 20 different manufacturers and producers of kits advertising their wares this last weekend. And uh, I guess along that line, what is public perception like? Be the, the dynamic between microlights, which you can buy ready to fly, and, and home-builds, how does the public perceive that? Is there general support or is it viewed as really kind of a niche offshoot? Interesting question. Um, I, I think for the vast majority of the general public, they're not even really particularly aware of the existence. Certainly it comes as a great surprise to many people I talk to that you can build an aeroplane, you know, and they're just not aware of that as a possibility. But we've got, I think, over two and a half thousand 
home-built aircraft on permits in the UK flying, and another 1,500 or so being built. So it's a fairly large proportion of the total number of aircraft here. General public's view, they often, or occasionally, I guess, see an aeroplane fly over them, and that's probably about it. Unless there's noise problems at a particular airfield, I don't think there's an awful lot of um, awareness. We do a lot to try and get people in. We have open days at airfields and get all the locals to come and take as many flying as we can. This coming Saturday, I'm one of a group who will spend all day taking um, scouts and guides flying and just trying to promote the message and get the, uh, the ideas out there, particularly to younger people. The uh, average age of LAA members is getting older all the time, unfortunately. What about the perception amongst uh, pilots in the UK? Yeah, if you're one of the C of A type aircraft, Certificate of Airworthiness aircraft, which often referred to as Annex 1 aircraft here because they feature in a, a list of um, aircraft approved by the European Safety Agency for aircraft, um, which is uh, production-built aircraft, essentially. I think there's a bit of a looking down the nose at uh, the home-built side of things. But as soon as I start talking to any of them and point out the relative costs, um, the little flying club, which I have some contact with on an instructional side, you're paying upwards of £180 per hour for being taught to fly in a Cessna 150. That's, what, $220, $230, I guess, something of that nature. Um, whereas uh, a home-built aircraft owned and operated by a group of members, you're probably talking £50 or $75 an hour. And when you point out the relative costs, they become a little more interested. Yeah, and that's not unlike um, some of the reactions you get in the States as well. It's not across the board that you get people that are unfamiliar with experimental, but there's a, a body of pilots out there that definitely kind of look down their nose at experimental aircraft. And they're a little suspicious of their, their build quality and their design heritage and all that. And sometimes just uh, taking them for a ride and talking to them about it really kind of opens their eyes as well. Absolutely. And just showing them some of the, uh, the possibilities, you know, like an RV-10 um, or a Lancer or something of that nature. Far better performance than anything they could ever dream of at a far better price. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, promotional work to do, do there. Now, Steve, you, you also have uh, quite a bit of contact with builders in Europe. So tell us a little bit about the landscape in, in Europe for Sonic's building and, and where the uh, where the clusters and hotspots are that you're aware of. Uh, it's fairly general. I started a sort of um, email-based newsletter group seven or eight years ago. Uh, by going on to the Sonics website, Sonics uh, in, uh, LLC in Oshkosh website, for uh, whether you can find a builder thing. And I just pulled out all the contact uh, emails for European-based Sonics builders and buyers, and I gathered other data from various databases about people and wrote to as many people as I could. That's uh, developed into Sonics in Europe, which is a very loosely-based um, grouping of uh, enthusiasts, pilots and builders. We've got I think about 65 people on the list 
at the moment, pushing 70 probably, from Norway to Italy, uh, Poland to Portugal, also covering a large chunk of Europe. I'm not sure that there are hot spots as such. Um, we're pretty thin on the ground, I think, is the way of looking at it. As you said, there's about 100 altogether, but they don't really... They, they, probably France would be the most concentrated group. And they have the advantage of a very enthusiastic um, importer and uh, build support type uh, chap down near Bordeaux. Um, but, you know, there's... there's uh, if we got every Sonics together at a flying, we'd probably get um, 80 or 90, I think, something of that nature. And is the uh, the newsletter, the Sonics in Europe newsletter, is that one of the main ways that builders interact with each other? Or do they have small local groups that, that they stay in contact? Or I guess, how do they support each other and share information? Um, Sonic specific, I would like to think that Sonics in Europe is the main way of getting information other than the uh, SBPF type uh, message boards and uh, forums and so on, in the, if people have problems, uh, they either write to me and I write out, send out to everybody else, or they've already got everybody else's address from an earlier mail, and they just write out and say, you know, how did you do so and so, or does anybody have a particular tool? And that works very well, um, particularly in view of the difficulty of obtaining. Um, fair supplies of things from Wisconsin, which is going to be a long, slow and expensive process. Um, there are, certainly here in the UK, we have um, the equivalent of your chapters, which we call struts, because they support people, uh, support aeroplanes. And within those struts, there will be much experience available, but probably not necessarily Sonic-specific. Metal building or whatever, yes, but not Sonic specific because of the paucity of the numbers around the country. Do you guys, um, or I, I should say, are, are you aware of any gatherings that attract Sonics builders in Europe? No, not outside the uh, the LAA rally as such, where I make a, a fairly detailed and specific attempt to get as many. Sonics people together and as many Sonics aircraft together as possible. Um, I'm not aware of any other specific Sonics type uh, gatherings or organizations. There are national associations for home built aircraft in most countries, which obviously would have Sonics aircraft within them, but I'm not aware of any specific organization for Sonics within those. They may exist, I just haven't come across them. Well, that sounds like a bad thing, but uh, that's really a, a great opportunity. So if a Sonics builder or a pilot flying a completed Sonics wanted to organize even a, a small regional uh, gathering, they could be first on the scene and be highly successful. So maybe that's a, a challenge to our European counterparts to get out there and, and start even a, a small-scale gathering to help promote and spread the word and attract new interested people. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. It sounds like an, uh, an excellent thing to do. And if anybody listening to this podcast has ideas along those lines and wants me to publicize it, just contact me and I'll get it out to everybody I know who's in Europe who has a Sonic or is interested in Sonic. 
Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, I think anything we can do to, to kind of help support these distributed population of builders is going to pay off in the long run. I agree. Absolutely. All right, uh, Gary, John, uh, what else? What what are we what are we missing here? What else do we need to know to to get a full appreciation of the flavor in in the UK and, and Europe? Well, for me, it just sounds like. Go ahead, Gary. I don't want to keep Steve up too much longer. His eyes have got to be getting ready to close. <laughs> I think he's done a pretty good job of giving us local flavor there and just kind of the process to get a a kid built Sonics uh, up and flying, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's that's kind of my uh, my opinion too. Is that they? <clears throat> it seems that both Europe and Australia have a lot more uh, uh, regulations and and a tighter control of the experimental uh, aviation. And you know, I think it's it can it can be a, a definite way to go. But boy, it's a lot lot more. Uh, Rigid than us. Well, Steve, I do have one kind of just, you know, just your own personal opinion, because I'm sure you don't have statistics readily available. But how would you um, characterize the accident rate for experimental aircraft in your part of the world? Uh, it's under control, I suppose. I, I don't have data to, to back up any uh, particular opinion, but... Um, the numbers of um, well, what you might call fender benders are relatively low. Um, the numbers of fatal accidents are very low. We, uh, the permit aircraft, um, they, but we do have fatal accidents, but they're pretty few and far in between. Would you think they're probably comparable to what we see here? I would be surprised if they were significantly different. Yeah. Um, I mean, to grand totals are probably different just because of the sheer number of aircraft here. Numbers, it's going to be very different. Yes, indeed. Um, Percentage-wise, as a pop total population, I'd be surprised if they weren't very, very similar. Um, okay. Where there might potentially be a difference, which would take a bit of digging to confirm, is whether there's justification to the extra regulation that we do in terms of producing uh, less structural failure. Um, I, I'd go out on a limb and say that probably it doesn't, but I could be proved wrong. Yeah, and our accident statistics show that although uh, a builder error, a structural failure, something along that line does show up in the data, uh, that really is not the predominant way that airplanes get in trouble and crash. It has much more to do with the decisions the pilot makes, their level of preparedness and their proficiency, than it does with an actual airplane structural item. I, I agree, and, and, and that is definitely the same on this side of the Atlantic, and precisely why um, we set up the coaching scheme, which is the uh, the sort of flight counselor side of things, um, must be 15, 16 years ago now, to address that sort of problem. We were getting to the point where certain aircraft were actually finding it, uh, owners were finding it very difficult to insure their aircraft because certain aircraft types 
had gained reputations as being uh, accident statistics. Um, so we basically said to the insurance industry, if we put in place training, will you look again and uh, not be so adverse to insurance? And they said yes, and the results have been good. Good. Well, Steve, I have one final question. And um, and if you need a minute to, to ponder this, that's fine. But... <laughs> <laughs> For, for, for Sonics, for supporting builders, for promoting, uh, for just general whatever products you'd like to see, if you had a, a short wish list of things that you would like to see happen to support, enable, and encourage Sonics building and flying in the UK and Europe, what would be on that short list of things? Oh, I would think probably the most critical would be quicker and cheaper access to fundamental kits and to spare parts and replacements. Um, we're now waiting, not for a Sonics, I hasten to add, but uh, we've got a, a problem with a BNC um, voltage regulator on another aircraft I fly, and we're now over a month since it was dispatched from the factory in the States, and it's yet to arrive here. It's a long, slow, and expensive process, particularly getting it into the country where 20% of the value immediately uh, is added by the tax authority. Um, and then there's import duty on top of that. So it, uh, whatever the price is for something in the States in dollars, uh, we'll end up paying, um, rule of thumb, something like 20 to 30% more in pounds, and pounds are worth more than dollars. Yeah, and that's something that's hard to solve. Uh, aside from the the geopolitical politics of uh, international trade, um, the low volumes make it difficult to have an importer to stockpile large quantities of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that is that is a significant challenge. It, it would be completely impractical to try and stockpile such. It would have to be manufactured here, and that's just not practical. Um the part of the difficulty most recently, the last 18 months to two years, is that the value of the pound has crashed um, as a result of certain political um, events. And um, therefore, cost of imports has gone up dramatically. However, it's not impossible. It does work, and we can do it. Well, and um, next time that I'm planning a holiday in, in uh, England, uh, I'll be sure to send you a note and say, is there anything you'd like me to bring along in my carry-on luggage? And I'll uh, I'll bring some stuff along. <laughs> well, that would be much appreciated. And we, and we'll find you a Sonics or another interesting airplane to fly in, and have a look at our green countryside. <laughs> Very good. All right, Steve. Well, uh, I I really do appreciate um, the rundown. I think that is a, a good introduction and what someone can expect. It gives me a much better idea on um, the the local flair. Uh, for home-built activities. Uh, it's encouraging to see that there is widespread interest in the Sonics and uh, and the things we can do to grow that interest. Uh, I think that with a little bit of passion on on the part of the current builders, we will continue to have a good, strong, healthy builder community and we'll see increased success. I, I, I um, echo that absolutely. And you only have to look at the number of people who stop walking around the airplanes at the rally uh, when they see a Sonics and start asking questions and looking at everything 
to understand that they do attract attention. They are a very good aircraft and they're um, very interesting and we hope to have a lot more more of them in the non-too-distant future. Okay, well, Steve, any parting thoughts? No, I don't think so. It's been a, a, an interesting experience, Paul. Well, good, and thanks again for uh, for braving the late hour, and uh, I do appreciate that. Um, are you planning to come to Sun and Fun or Air Venture next year? Uh, not Sun and Fun, though. We were there this last April. Uh, Air Venture... There are possibilities. I, I'm, I'm very much hoping to be there in 2019, but um, uh, depends on an awful lot of things. Part of which is um, I'm going home to New Zealand for five or six months over the winter, uh, northern winter, uh, which uh, is going to take a big chunk out of my pension available funds. So we'll have to see if I can afford it next year. But I would very much like to come there. Yep, yep, understood. Well, if you do, uh, be sure to keep us updated on your travel plans, and uh, we'll have to plan to get together and sit down and uh, have a beverage and catch up. Well, it, it will almost certainly be camping with Wayne, as I did last time. It's uh, such a pleasant experience over there. Yeah. Steve, I'm serious about sitting down and having a beverage. And uh, think about all the stuff that you can uh, pack in your carry-on luggage from the grounds of AirVenture to finish out that almost ready to fly Sonic. So it makes sense on a lot of different fronts. <laughs> well, for everybody else, you can find this episode on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash four three and listen to the show, subscribe to it through iTunes, Google play, uh, your favorite podcast app. You can find the email link feedback at sonicsflight.com. If you need to get a hold of us, Send us some feedback and generally connect with us uh, using our, our website and our new Sonics Flight Facebook group. So you can go check that out. Just a quick reminder that we are still planning to do the Firewall Forward Installation Seminar. That's coming up in early November. And you can go to sonicsflight.com and find the link to the seminar if you're interested, or send us a, an email if you have questions. That'll be a really interesting time, and look forward to really working through some of those issues with builders here in Kansas City. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it as usual, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Everybody fly safe. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.